All right, it's Jeff Mayhew, it's John Beatty, it's Politics and Parenting. How are you doing today, John? I'm doing all right, Jeff. I'm doing all right. Uh, my wife just got back from the emergency room. So as you can imagine, that was uh, not what we were expecting our Sunday afternoon to turn into. But, you know, it's funny when you tell when you tell your son, sons, uh, not to play in the top bed of the, uh, bu- not to play on the top of, of the bunk bed, um, there's, there's kind of a reason for that. And so um, this afternoon, someone got pushed off and uh, his wrist was hurting and it was hurting out throughout dinner. And uh, so Katie took him to the ER and they did some x-rays and stuff. And uh, thankfully there's no visible break. It could be a growth plate, but we'll, um, we'll keep our eye on it. So, um, Oh my just, goodness. That's the cap to the week. So that's uh, that's parenting for you. That is parenting. Well, you know, hopefully, hopefully he heals up well, you know, the growth plate thing is a little bit of a concern, but we have a lot of uh, modern technology nowadays. People are able to come back from that pretty well. So um, John, today we have a guest, Eddie Garcia. He is running for U.S. Uh, federal Senate, just to make sure everybody understands the federal position. Um, Eddie, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, John, for having me. I'm I'm happy to be here. I'm excited to have a conversation, especially with some local guys. Uh, that that that's always a good thing. So happy to be here. So um, I you know I do the standard thing when I I find a politician who's running in my jurisdiction, which obviously I live in Virginia, so you're in my jurisdiction, and I go through website and Twitter and I try to find out like who is this person, what do they want to know, and. The first thing I try to look for is family. So why don't you uh, introduce yourself to the people? Tell us a little bit about your uh, family background, where you come from, and then uh, you know maybe why you chose to run for Senate. Sure, I appreciate the opportunity. So my name is Eddie Garcia. I'm running for the U- United States Senate right here in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Uh, I'm, I'm not originally a Virginian, and I tell people that I chose Virginia. My wife and I, uh, we chose to stay here. We chose to, to raise our kids here. We chose to send them to school here. Uh, because we think Virginia is a super important, just a super important place to be. Uh, it's a it's, it's an important state. It's a bellwether for the rest of uh, of the country. We see that in legislation. Uh, things that tend to start here in Virginia trickle down to the rest of society, both the good and the bad. And so I'm originally from uh, near the Rio Grande Valley in South Texas. I'm from a small country town. Uh, as the, as the last name. Uh, gives away. I'm I'm Hispanic. I'm Mexican American. Uh, I come from a long history of Hispanic Americans that serve the nation. So my great grandfather Andres Garcia, Andres, uh, he he was an infantryman in World War One for the Army. His son, my grandfather Ramon Garcia, uh, was a was an in the Army during World War Two. My stepfather uh, Raúl Martinez was a, an Airborne MP in Vietnam. And so uh, it, then being in in the country in South Texas. Uh, there, there's typically only a few avenues of uh, of approach for uh, jobs and career goes. Either you're in the oil and gas industry, you're in cattle and farming, or you join the military. And so coming from that background, I joined the, the Army Reserves when I was 17 years old. So I was still in high school and I would go to high school during the during the week and I would do Army drill during the weekends and a week after graduation. I went to I went to basic training. I was in the reserves for about two and a half years. And then 9-11 occurred. And after 9-11, once again, the, the country was at war. And so following in these men's footsteps, I thought it was my duty to, to go defend our nation like they did. Uh, and so I spent the next 22 years serving our nation. I went to airborne school, graduated ranger school. Uh, I was stationed in Germany uh, for a while. I met my wife, Veronica, and we had two beautiful girls. We still have two beautiful girls. 
And um, I, I deployed to combat six times, three to Iraq, three to Afghanistan, uh, both before the withdrawal and then after with the withdrawal in Iraq. Um, I got a chance to work um, at some pretty high levels of federal government within the military. I commanded troops in the 82nd Airborne Division, uh, and I finished my career in the Pentagon. So that's how we got up to Virginia a little bit over five years ago. And I was working for the Pentagon on behalf of the Army with the House of the Representatives, with the U.S. Senate, to pass legislation that supports veterans, that, in, in, that in, in, uh, in enhances our military, that pays our troops, and that supports Gold Star families. And so during that period, I got a chance to uh, staff with a uh, with a member of Congress from Mississippi's first district, Trent Kelly, and he's a 37-year National Guard two-star general, and he's a member of Congress. So it was a perfect fit between us, my background in history, and his background in history, um, where I really got to understand the, the nuts and bolts of, of legislation at the federal level, and also the, the, the struggle of rural America, because if anybody knows anything about uh, Mississippi's first district, that's Northeast Mississippi. Um, that's a rural area of the country. And rural America has been has taken the brunt uh, of uh, the economy over the last 30 years or so, especially with the with the rise of China and the outsourcing of jobs. And so that background, uh, married with a with a master's degree in federal legislation, legislative affairs from George Washington, um, when we retired this past year, Looking at the landscape, the political landscape here in Virginia, uh, the results of the 22 uh, uh, midterm elections that didn't turn out as, as, as a lot of people predicted, um, I saw, we saw, my wife and I sat down and had a conversation about what it looks like to continue to serve this nation and what capacity could we do that. Uh, and and the, the federal political landscape, in my opinion, is is open for the right candidate with the right message who wants to, to to help people and not take advantage of them, who actually wants to serve rather than be served. And I think now it's more important than ever that from a Republican standpoint, from a conservative standpoint, that we have candidates that can articulate a message, a, mess, a positive message, one that is focused on problem solving, uh, that uh, is focused on working, uh, I wouldn't say working across the aisle, but working with anyone, anyone that is that is open to uh, to to federal policy and legislation that supports regular working people. Uh, I think that's the the angst of a lot of uh, of America and, and, and the kind of vitriol and the anxiety that so many people are feeling these days is because they, they, we have people in, in positions of power that not only do they not care about them, maybe they never cared about them, but it, today it's very easily to see how little that our, our political leaders actually care about the, the ramifications of bad policy and what the effects are on regular people. And so I I just can't stand by and allow uh, allow this to, to, to go on without doing something about it. And so that's what we're yeah. doing. We're, we're running for for federal office uh, because I think Tim Kaine epitomizes everything that I just talked about and what, what's wrong. P career politicians who helps cause a lot of these problems that we see. Um, I'm not interested in, in, in necessarily hashing out all the problems, but I'm more focused on finding solutions to those. Uh, and in order to do that, we, we need a candidate that can uh, that can express that message, articulate that message, be a, a positive influence for for regular people, and and inspire some some hope back into the people across Virginia. And so that's what I hope to do. That's why we're running, and that's kind of you know my background of where I've come from.
Yeah, I mean, so first, thank you for your service. Um, I remember 9-11 very well. I was in high school at the time. It was a very scary moment for a lot of people. I can't imagine you, it sounds like you were just about my age uh, when that happened and you were going off to serve and I was still here, you know, being a teenager. Uh, so thank you so much for that. Uh, that's, you know, I, I could probably do an hour show just on asking you questions about your service, but we're here to talk about the Senate and everything. Um, so a few things, uh, you know, just to give the people a little background about who you are, uh, the people that listen. Uh, these are some quotes that I pulled off of uh, your Twitter or Facebook page. Uh, Hollowing out of the middle class. Uh, regular people need a voice. We need term limits now. A campaign for the people must be funded by the people. So what I'm hearing in a lot of this stuff is I'm hearing populism. John, are you hearing populism here? It's definitely an appeal to the people, an appeal to... Uh... Again, like you talking about the the problem, the your interest and your experience with rural Mississippi, and, and understanding that um, we gave up a lot in order to get uh, cheap goods. We we moved a lot of things overseas, and sort of, I think twenty years down, like a generation later, we're dealing with the consequences of that that I, I imagine very few people foresaw. And you know, um, whether or not those decisions were right at the time, or people understood what was going on, like we got a we have a mess right now where uh, we don't have the uh, the manufacturing at home, we don't have a, a, some of the stable jobs that we used to have. Um, there's a lot more flexibility. Now, again, like the whole economy is changing. So I think that's one thing where um, I'd be interested to hear your take and sort of, are we going to stay static with what we had uh, 20, 30 years ago? Or are we going to provide more opportunities for people to actually grow into what the, the whole changing world around us? I mean, you know, you've got a big, you've got a big tree um, do you allow it to keep growing or do you just kind of uh, lop off the limbs and just kind of keep it the same size? Well, I, was that a question for me it was, as to where oh, I think it, kind you know, of yeah. kind of my priorities or where where do I think that the uh, uh, the American people or the political class is going to keep us uh, kind of stagnant in the same old same? I would say so, you know, you're going to be in the Senate, you're going to be making decisions. Are you going and, you know, you're talking about your experience understanding rural Mississippi and, you know, Virginia has a lot of rural parts. And in fact, Southwest Virginia is um, in a, in a tough, tough spot because you're losing what a little manu you know, manufacturing you got there. Um, so the state of Virginia is doing well, but it's driven so much by, by Northern Virginia, by Hampton roads. Um, I, I want to say like, and I went to Virginia tech, so I was driving at 81 all the time. And I just know like Virginia tech is a huge economic powerhouse in the area, but that's one university and there's a whole lot of people there that, that need that support. So kind of where would you see that, um, where would you see things going in, in, in what the Senate can control and, and how they can affect things? Is it going back, to, I guess, it going back to a manufacturing base or is it trying to rethink how uh, our economy can work just given how things have changed so much? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, objectively speaking, I think that there's a lot of, the idea of manufacturing, there is a lot of the idea of the, the old manufacturing just doesn't exist anymore in the same capacity that it used to. Uh, however, as we saw over the last two years, COVID wrecked our supply chain and we couldn't get a lot of supplies. We couldn't get a lot of medicines. So critical supplies, critical manufacturing, we really need to incentivize uh, to, to, to come back here, to be started here. The, the next generation of, of medicine, medicines, medication, uh, uh, pharmaceutical manufacturing, like we need uh, a, an industry base here in America to do some of these things. 
second to that, there is going to be an economy of the future, uh, which very few people, I think, talk about, especially politicians. Maybe they haven't thought, thought about it. But um, we talk about automation and all the jobs that will be lost from automation. Uh, I also think that there's going to be a lot of jobs and industries created because of automation. If, if you look in the field of robotics, for instance, and there's more and more uh, companies manufacturing uh, warehouses that are that have robots and that, that have their own uh, uh, technology that they're developing. Well, those people, th those companies are going to need uh, are going to need suppliers. They're going to need manufacturers. They're going to need to be uh, uh, technicians. They're going to need to be coders. There's there's whole industries that are just waiting to be built in the future that are in the in the world of advanced technology so robotics uh, artificial intelligence cybersecurity hypersonic weapons uh, the, whole, the military industrial complex got a whole uh, slew of, of of technologies that they're trying to adapt and rapidly field also so there's ample opportunity now the question is are we going to uh, from a federal perspective uh, from a governmental perspective are we going to incentivize and, and encourage an industry to uh, to, to build these things here in America? Or are we going to simply allow them to do it in Mexico or La Latin America or Taiwan or in you know Indonesia or anywhere else? Um, in, in my opinion, if we do that, if we allow that, if we incentivize companies and, and, and these corporations to start uh, their, 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 these technology companies, these manufacturing plants, this, this entire labor force somewhere else, then we're going to do us a, a big disservice, and we and we leave ourselves vulnerable uh, to any supply chain shock. Now we can talk about COVID; that that is a supply chain shock, but uh, a, a military blockade of the South China Sea—that's a supply chain shock. Uh, the the Iranians trying to close down the Strait of Hormuz—that's a supply chain shock. If it's uh, some plant in Latin America and the and the government decide to nationalize it and become theirs, that's a supply chain shock. And so there's a there's a ton of uh, different potential outcomes that could be negative by continuing to allow companies uh, the, the the outsourcing of their of their intellectual property uh, and and their jobs elsewhere. America, as you you, you uh, repeated, and I say this a lot. We, we we've hollowed out uh, rural America. We we've hollowed out the middle class. We've uh, th there's a large population in rural America in in the Southwest and in the, in the South of of Virginia, all the way down to Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, South Carolina. You you name it. Where there's and then there's the the whole quote unquote Rust Belt uh, that was so popularly talked about in 2016 during that election. Uh, but now people have forgotten about. Yeah. Uh, th there's a large population that that are Americans that want to work, uh, that that need jobs. They speak the language. There's a lot of there's a lot of uh, uh, conservative, business friendly local and state governments in those in those uh, states that I just rattled off. Where there's their right to work states, uh, they have cheap they have cheap land, cheap access to utilities, uh, and they're and they're open for business. But there's so many regulations here in America that start at the federal level, whether it be environmental regulations, whether it just be uh, work and labor uh, regulations that disincentivize companies from starting here in America. So instead, they they, they would rather go down to uh, south of the border or, or overseas to, for, to pay people pennies on the dollar and not have to worry about um, all the regulations that we have here. And so that's a, fed, that's a federally focused issue. Yeah. So you so, talk about incentives. Oh, one question, just if, if you don't mind. Um, so you talk about incentives. Like, what would it, what would you do as an incentive to get 
someone Ooh. to open a manufacturing state in Virginia? I mean, would you Ooh. give them a, a million dollar federal subsidy or the just, you know, it would depend on what they're offering, but but the first thing is we got to we got to reduce some of the regulations for industries that we know we want to prioritize, and in the few these this these industries of future technology we want to prioritize because if we don't then they we, they just won't happen. Um, companies make too much money everywhere else, uh, and if and if it's a, a quote unquote free market system, then they'll just go somewhere else and 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 they'll do it for cheap and then sell it back to us. Which is which, which again leaves us vulnerable. So regulations, uh, taxes, um, and you know public-private partnerships to 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 help these industries grow. The 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 biggest risk to any industry from a businessman's perspective is the initial startup cost. It's the initial uh, you know, uh, uh, the demand whether it's going to be there, whether it's not. Can they make this happen? And so those industries look to government. Uh, yeah. to 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 kind of backstop or at least give them an idea of of this is going to be my customer and I know that they have my back too. If we have to go that route to to get some of these industries that we know we want to prioritize in order to employ people in order to sustain ourselves in the future, then then that's something we have to do. But right now we're not doing it at, at all. So um, I'm going to come back and follow up with that in a minute. I got some more questions. We're just going to give you a. a a few basic questions, um, like John and I, the, our listeners know that we talk about things a little bit differently. Um, so we're going to be three to five minutes to answer the question. We're going to move on to the next one, and then we'll come back um, and you know jump in with some different things. Um, first question is, who does the senator represent? When you are a U.S. senator in that at, at that position, when you're elected, who do you represent? People of Virginia. Okay. I mean, right. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't think I need three minutes on that. I, <laughs> you, you're, you, you represent the people who vote for you. Um, uh, there's my, my old boss used to say, you vote your district. Um, so that's what you do. You vote your district. If your district wants you to, you know, to, to, to push an, an item or vote a certain way, if the state elected me, then I'm working for the state. I'm working for those individual constituents, those business owners, the, the, the meat and potatoes of Virginia. That that's who I would represent. I, I don't, I couldn't tell you who the, who the current senators think they represent, um, but I would tell you that's how that's how I feel about it. Okay. So uh, second question is why don't politicians talk about campaign finance? I knock a lot of doors in Virginia, and I can tell you that most people that answer the door that are willing to talk to you about politics thinks that it's corrupt, and they think it's corrupt because of the campaign finance situation. So why don't more uh, politicians actually talk about what the people want to hear? Well, I think politicians don't talk about it because they they they're the ones getting the benefits of the current campaign finance laws. Um, the reason you mentioned the uh, the statement on term limits, uh, I constitutionally, I went back and forth for years on the idea of term limits as a a, a good or a bad or constitutional or not because we are a, a, a representative. Uh, of the people. And if the people want to vote for the same guy for 30 years or 50 years or whatever the case may be, we should have that right. And and so there's a push and pull. It wasn't until I actually started running for office that I realized that the real skew in this system is the campaign finance, is the fact that if you're a senator elected six years ago to public office, now you've spent the next six years raising money you got a six-year head start 
on anybody else who would challenge you. And you wonder why the, uh, you know, the incumbents have a 85, 90% uh, uh, election, uh, re-election rate. That's a, that's a massive reason. It's because they've been raising money as a sitting congressman or a sitting senator for the last, you know, two years or six years um, in their position of power. Meanwhile, six years ago, I was, you know, a, a, a younger father <laughs> working in, in in the military, and anybody else was doing was living their life. We weren't thinking about trying to run a, a, an election six years from now, and so that is where. Um, that's where the big skew is in the in the whole campaign apparatus. Campaign finance is a big issue. I, I now uh, that I've experienced it firsthand, I, I see that. And to your answer as to why they don't, it's I think it's obvious. It's it's because they don't want to give up the levers of power and the and the levers of riches that uh, are afforded to them. Uh, it, as it as term limits, kind of the same same deal. Is that nobody's going to vote against their own interests, especially not if they're in if they're making millions of dollars off of it. Uh, but it's it is definitely something we need to look at. I, I believe, and I hadn't thought about this in a while, but I believe if you go back to the 2008 presidential um, race between Barack Obama and John McCain, uh, they were both talking about campaign finance reform and essentially equaling it out and 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 going at it with the same amount of money until Barack Obama actually saw how much money he was going to be able to raise, <laughs> and then he back, then they backed out of the deal. I don't well, remember it, all the specifics, so don't hold me to it. I'll just yeah. lose my disclaimer. But I do remember that from uh, fr from that long ago. And well, it, it's the same case. And and we had uh, two years later, we had uh, uh, Citizens United, right? And it, you'll know uh, the previous campaign finance law was McCain-Feingold, right? So that's what Citizens United undid. So yes, there are uh, a, a lot of stuff to go on with campaign finance. But I got to say, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but I liked your answer there. Um, <laughs> so next question, uh, how many reps should Congress have? I know you're going to be a senator, yeah. but this is a big thing that I want to, you know, I want people talking about um, is the the capping of the House and how many representatives, you, you know, you're talking about the people, right? That's the people's voice. So how many representatives do you think they should have? There's a good case to be made that we expand the House. Um, I don't know all the hard data on uh, what the what the rate per member, the, the the amount of people per member when when the House was capped originally, but seven hundred and fifty thousand people per uh, uh, per one representative seems like an awful lot. Mm -hmm. And but the next logical question is, what would be the right answer? And, and where would those people even be? I mean, the, Washington is already a mess. And so how you, how would you work that? I have no idea. And so uh, I'm, I'm definitely open to having the conversation and, and, and listening to arguments. I think, honestly, if you're just being off the, off the cuff here, I think that it'll, it, it probably won't get done just because there's not enough offices uh, to, to house any more people in the, in the house right now. I mean, it's already three, three buildings full of, uh, 435 people and their staff. And well, so well, what I'll say to that is it's their job, right? So like yeah. build more buildings, right. You know, like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. no, but I, to your, to your point, I, I, um, I definitely think that's a conversation worth, worth having because yeah. the more, or I would say the less influence in the, an individual has over its representative, the the less that the individual has uh, uh, you know a representative of 
And so if there was 250,000, uh, okay, so there's one out of 250,000. That, that's my voice. But now that's one out of 750,000. Like who, who's actually listening to me now? Exactly. Uh, if I'm not independently wealthy and actively given to campaigns, either through money or, or, or work, volunteer hours. It gets tougher and tougher, which is which is part of this problem that Congress has become more and more disconnected from the average working family. And so they only circulate them with themselves and, and, and the people who donate to them. That's a problem. Yeah, no, I obviously I agree as as <laughs> that's my big rallying cry around here is, is okay. uncapping the house. Uh, John, you had a question about uh, health care. You want to jump in with that one? Yeah, well, I just I'll tack on the previous conversation. I was kind of in your same spot, Eddie. Uh, <clears throat> was it last year, Jeff, when I first met you? And uh, there's this crazy guy talking about expanding the house. Like, you know, it's an interesting idea. I think we all realize like there's a problem with representation, and um, the more you think about it, so you know, you don't have to have the the answer right now. But the more you think about it, you're kind of like, yeah, we could have more people. And and honestly, where where the people would come from, you you could just split the districts in half, really, like. Um, that would be the simplest thing. So, you know, the redistricting is not terribly, especially if you kind of plan it out where you, and you did it um, in 2032 as the next election, sort of as part of the normal redistricting process, you just said everyone gets an extra, double the set of the House members. And then in terms of where you put them in DC, I, I mean, uh, as Jeff pointed out, like Congress loves to spend money and, and Congress <laughs> loves to build, like you could, you could find a place on Capitol Hill, you could you know, I'm sure that I'm sure some people would be happy to lend their row houses in order to get better representation. Although I guess you know, to, maybe uh, not in DC. That's, houses. Their, that's a big complaint. Yeah. So it happens. Um, no, it just based uh, as I was thinking about this podcast this evening, and then as my wife was whisking our son off to the emergency room, it kind of brought back this idea that um, I've been thinking about for a while. So, you know, you had mentioned before you're you're on the campaign trail. People are complaining about issues and. Stuff. Do people ever complain to you about healthcare? And sort of, I'd be curious to say what the, if they say anything about healthcare. I mean, like if you kind of follow like the the, the people the discussion on Twitter, it seems like um, so the sort of the more democratic position is um, our healthcare system's great. We just people can't afford it. And then I think on the Republican side, um, we don't really have an answer back to that. And like I don't know if you if you thought about that and what your um, solutions might be if there's any problems you see. Well, I have thought about it and uh, talking with health share companies um, is has opened my, I guess, started to open my eyes to some of the some of the back end uh, of healthcare or health, you know, the, the healthcare providers. Um, as a military guy, I mean, I've been on government healthcare for 20 years and I, I, I can list a, a whole list of complaints to that. Um, and so this is a new four-way Fourier out in, in this in this field for me uh, but one I think we need to get rid of the the state-run monopolies so we need to open up interstate commerce for health insurance uh, health insurers so to make it easier to drive up competition make it easier for for people to, to to purchase health insurance and then that competition should drive down prices that it does with every other type of insurance except for health insurance and you'd have to ask yourself why and I think that's the biggest reason is that if if there's only two carriers in the state of Virginia, for instance, and I don't know, I, I don't know if there's two. There's probably four or five, uh, but, but then then they have their own little monopolies here, and there's no incentive um, to to try to become more efficient because there, no one from Tennessee, no one from North Carolina or Texas uh, can sell insurance here in Virginia. 
So I think that's the first thing. And if you go back to 2016, you'd see, you you would remember that Donald Trump talked about this a lot, uh, uh, about getting rid of the state boundaries. Uh, two, I think we need more uh, tri uh, price transparency. We need to understand what things cost. Uh, one of the big problems we have in in uh, from a from a uh, consumer perspective is that I don't know what things cost. I don't know why one doctor, one uh, uh, one operation, one visit costs as much as it does. Uh, maybe there's valid reasons for that, but we never see that. And it's been my experience, and maybe and it, it, there's one man's experience, and and what I hear on the campaign trails that people feel that there's a an, an incentive by the doctors and the medical industry to increase prices because if they increase prices, then they can then constituents will go back to their uh, to their members of Congress and 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 ask and and, and uh, advocate for increase of of government subsidies like Medicare, Medicaid, right? So if the prices are rising, well, then Medicare has got to have to rise along with it. And if Medicare rises along with it, well, then the doctors make more, the insurance companies make more. And everybody, everybody in that system is happy except the government who's paying more, but they don't have an incentive to even look into it. And then the the individual who may not fall in, in, in a category where they're able to afford insurance or they're not on government health care. I mean, my, my, my own father falls into that category. He, uh, uh, he, he just can't afford, he couldn't afford health insurance uh, back in 08. Uh, he was promised that he would be able to uh, afford insurance if Obamacare passed. Uh, Obamacare passed and insurance got more expensive for him. And uh, he still doesn't have it and he still, does, he still can't afford it. And so there's, a, and that's just one man's scenario but there's a lot of people that fall into that category. Uh, it, it's just unaffordable the, the way it's currently run. And so we, we really need to start to understand why that is and start to solve some of that problem. The, 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 the problem is, I mean, the, the solution isn't just to give everybody health insurance carte blanche um, with, without ever looking at these prices and, and understanding what, where is all the costs going. Um, I think that, I think that the Democrats are right to be looking at these issues and, and trying to pick out solutions. I just don't think they're uh, they're anywhere near the right solution because they're trying to have a government takeover of it all, which be, is only going to make things worse. Be careful, Eddie. You kind of complimented a Democrat, and as a Republican, that's a big no-no nowadays. So yeah, just, no, yeah, I, I don't know. They might like you when you get to the Senate and want to work. I would with tell you, you if, if there's like somebody who wants to get health insurance or, or wants to help people, more people get health insurance in a, in a cost-effective manner, Congratulations! You're gonna you're gonna have an ally, uh, and and, and it, that's just how I feel. I mean, I'm a again, I'm a, I'm an army guy. We I wore green for 22 years. Um, I believe in in I believe America is a better place when we work together and we're, we're talking and not yelling. I believe that we're better when we're working and not arguing. So, on that subject, when America is working together, we are better. So John and I are big history buffs here. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a little history question. If uh, it's in it's in context for a position that you would take as a senator, right? Um, so pre Civil War, both Lincoln and James Buchanan understood that the states were in violation of the Constitution when they seceded, based under the con uh, the contract clause of the Constitution. Now, where they differed was. Lincoln believed that he had the power and authority to do something about it, and Buchanan believed that the presidency was powerless to do something about it. 
who whose side are you taking here? Was Buchanan right that the president is powerless to stop a seceding state? Or was Lincoln right to say that that is his responsibility as the executive of the nation to protect the nation? I think the um, I'm going to take the side of Lincoln um, just because that last statement that you made, um, it, it is his it is it is the president's number one duty to to save the union, to save the nation, to protect the 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 sanctity, the wholeness uh, of a nation, because if not, then well, then we don't we don't want to find out what the alternatives are. Uh, I've spent a lot of time in the Middle East, in countries that used to be one country and now they're separate countries. And uh, it, it's not going well, and it hasn't gone well for many, many years. And then so they're literally at wars with each other. Uh, I don't think that's what we, we I think that's what we would have ended up having um, had uh, Lincoln not stood his ground and, 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 and fought for uh, the union, for one big union. Um, I think that America, it, it does work best together there's a there's an idea floating around about a, a national divorce I, I was i was quick to come out when i saw that to say that's a bad idea uh because of my experiences people who used to be in uh, to have to, to to deal with one another thought it would be a good idea to separate and then as soon as they separated battle lines were drawn uh walls were built and guns were pointed and yeah. and, and and it hasn't ended well that is a very good point. And you bring a unique perspective to that, actually being able to see it happening within the last, within our generation, just in different countries. I think a lot of Americans just don't understand how privileged we are to have this one great large republic that we live under. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, one, another question here, because John and I both love to read, and we believe that it's a, a representative's responsibility to inform and listen. Uh, is what is the most recent book you've read? Oh, the most recent book I've read, uh, the biography of Paul, Paul. Um, by N. T. Wright. If you haven't, um, if you haven't read it, it's pretty good. I mean, there he he, he gives a good, pretty good history of uh, Paul's travels from you know even what we know of him as a as a child in in Tarsus. And uh, how he would grow up, and you know, studying under Gamaliel, who is mentioned a few times in the in, in the Book of Acts, and uh, and it, it gives like, but at every chapter, I'm trying to remember now. I think believe in every chapter, uh, there's a little makeshift map of like where he's walked and what he did and where he went. It kind of gives you a, a an understanding of the man, man Paul, not just the biblical figure, and kind of his Jewish upbringing and, and background and history and what the intellectual thought of the day was because he was such a uh obviously an intellectual and 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 giving a speech on the Oropagus in like act 16 act 17 and and how the theology or the philosophy of the time plus his theology kind of formed uh you know his, his spirituality during that time nice that's a good one I, I love when people have answers to that. It makes me so happy. And that's a great book. I'm going to actually add that to my reading list. I looked that up while you were talking. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. No, it's good. Um, okay. I mean, I don't know. I don't know anybody's faith or anything like that. But if you're, um, uh, it, it, yeah, if you're a Christian and you're interested or if you're just interested in the Bible and, and Paul, I mean, he's the most influential outside of Jesus. Uh, yeah. He's probably the most in, influential you know, individual in, in, in history because the, the Bible is so popular. And so yeah. he, he you know, have the New Testament. So we asked you, who does the senator represent 
Now I want to ask you, who does the senator serve? The people, the, the same people. I mean, if he's if he's representing them, he should serve the people. Again, I, I'm a it, to me, I'm a simple guy. And so I, I always say I dance with uh, the person who takes me. Um, if the people elect you, that's who you're building to. That's who you should be accountable to. You said you saw a bunch of stuff online uh, about me and videos. I, I put all my stuff on on video and, and so that you can see that. Right. I, I want people to understand what I'm saying to you guys here on, on this thing, and it's going to be posted online. I'm, I'm good with that because one, I believe what I say Two, I want you to hold me accountable. And if, and if my mind changes six months from now and I, uh, and, and somebody says, Hey, wait a minute, you used to say this. And now you're saying this, what happened? I, I would hopefully have a good explanation for that rather than uh, you just look at the the my my donor list, and all of a sudden you had an, uh, a change, a dramatic change in my donor list, and you had a dramatic <laughs> change in my message. Uh, it, it's easy to point out. I think a lot of the politicians that we see in in uh, Washington today, they have their power, they get reelected because they don't say anything, and they try to keep their opinions under wrap, and they they talk to small groups of people. I don't have any problem talking to everybody. That's what. I think that's one of the reasons it sets me apart from anybody else who's going to run for office. Um, not because I want to be, you know, internet famous or anything, but I do want people to understand where I come from. Yeah. Understand my story, understand how I look at the world, understand where I come up with these decisions. And if you can, if, if someone can teach me something, I will willingly learn. Um, there's, there's a ton of issues that I would, that I need to understand more and dig deeper. And, and there's only so many experts in the world, uh, I'm definitely not one of them. So, but, but I will listen. I will learn, and and then you know, if I start every conversation with policy at, at a very personal level, what does the Constitution say? What does uh, what, what what does my uh, what does God say? And then how what is the effect on on the nuclear family? And and from there, we'll start in a direction. So um, John and I, uh, we actually teach classes on government in our in our uh, area. So if you ever want to drop by, maybe you can uh, you know speak or or whatever and listen to some of the crazy things that we talk about. You know, because we're big government nerds. Um, Let's do it. So you know, now John, I'm gonna go back and I'm not trying to like nitpick. I just want to discuss some of these questions, some of your answers with you. So the first one, uh, what is this? Who does the senator represent? In my opinion, the senator represents the state, not the people. Now, you are going to be elected by the people. That is a situation that I disagree our country should be doing with. That's the, you know, it's the 17th Amendment, right, John? 17th. Yeah. That's the direct election of senators. But, um, you know, I would be for repealing that so people that are running for office don't think that they're, you know, they represent the people because, you know, each body of the Congress has a focus, right? And it's divided that way for a reason. Um, the next thing that I would say, the who does the senator serve? So they they represent the state and they serve both the state, the people of the state and the federal union, right? Because kind of like what we were talking about with Lincoln, his responsibility is to preserve the union. That would also be the same mindset of a US senator, maybe a little bit different than a governor of a state, right? Because that governor is strictly state and the U.S. senator is both state and federal. Um, what do you think about that? Does that kind of jive with maybe the way you were thinking, or you see yeah. it, or you disagree? No, no, you're right because the federal issues, federal issues expand beyond state borders. And so when you said who do, who are they serving, um, I still say you, you're serving the people, 
right? right. And, and yeah, maybe, maybe I, I said that a little bit too quick without fully grasping where you were going to take it. So yeah, I mean, as a as a U.S. federal uh, federally elected senator, I mean, the border, right? Obviously, this is not a border state, but the border affects this state. And so national security, uh, trade policy, um, foreign affairs, uh, the, the military conflict, all of those things that are not happening necessarily in Virginia, but 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 affect it. Um, there there is a role. I mean, it, there is a role for the the sanctity of America and and protecting of all of its citizens as well as Virginia. Yeah. Um, so when you were talking to John about the healthcare, you were talking about you know. How do we how do we fix it? We need to look at it in a different way. So you know, from my study, this is what I would say. So, uh, are you you're familiar with uh, Rehnquist, right? It was William. It's William Rehnquist. He was the Supreme Court justice. So when he before he was Chief Justice, he was on a big pharma case back in the uh, I believe it was seventy six. I don't remember the specific case now, but it was about the ability for pharma to advertise. Um, and he he wrote in his dissent that if we allow this to happen, what you're going to see is just a flood of ads of and, you know, kind of a manipulation of the medical industry. Um, it was a you know, I study it because I believe corporations have a little bit too much power in here. This is an opportunity. This is how they did it. They did it through the Supreme Court. And if you if you go back and you read the dissent, you'll see like Rinkowitz hit the hit the uh, nail on the head, kind of predicting the future in this. Um do you think there's a possibility that maybe we can rethink the way that we, you know, the whole industry of healthcare and like how they advertise and what it's for? Because is it for profit? Or is it for to help people? Right? Because if it's like, which one is it for? And what's their what's their focus? Well, the idea is that it would be both, and it's 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 profitable that way. It, it stays innovation stays current because uh, we're we're we, we tend to be. Uh, people who don't act unless we have an incentive to act and businesses don't act unless they have a financial incentive to act. And so we, we want them to be profitable. That way they take risk and innovate. Uh, but at the same time, we also don't want to gouge uh, the, the people. We don't want monopolies. Monopolies are illegal. I think that um, you, you mentioned earlier about saying good things about Democrats. I think that uh, the Democrats have, are historically have been correct about being wary of corporate power. I think uh, the the Republicans have uh, been correctly wary of government power, and um, those two things for a long time were at, opposed with one another. And I think the, the the place that we've come to realize is that now the the corporate power and government power are working together, and both sides in different avenues of the of that uh, of this political space are are feeling the effects of that. And so I think we need to we need to have a, a a holistic approach and understanding that it, you you can't always be right and you can't always be left you can't always be in one direction because it, what we've come to realize what I've come to realize is that and I'm, I'm I don't think that I'm speaking you know anything that you guys probably already hadn't looked at is that it, in one direction unchecked um leads to draconian places that we uh, destinations that we end up in and so if, if all we do is, is crack down on, on corporations, well, then you're going to have a government run something. And, there, and, and if you let that go long enough, it's going to be inefficient. It's going to be overburdensome. It's going to be uh, super expensive. And, uh, and there's no incentive. And right. so that, that's a problem. If we, let, uh, if we crack down on all the government, like some people on the right like, like to talk about, well, then you're going to get 
transportation, you know, trains that collide, you're going to get planes that don't fly, you're going to get um, toxic air and water uh, that that we see in Ohio right now that gets untreated, Mississippi and Jackson, Mississippi and in Flint, Michigan. Uh, so, so we actually need both of those things. We need a, 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 a moral corporate industry, but we also and we also need uh, a, a government that is not overbearing bearing and burdensome and tyrannical. I think that if you look at two great phrases from both spectrums of this, uh, one of them is mostly well known by John Adams about, you know, having a republic. Uh, a republic is only a, a, is only resolute for for a moral people. It's inadequate for anything other than, right? And he's talking government. Well, John Locke talks about the economy and the free market system, and that a free market system without an ethical underpinning is going to lead to tyranny. And and so both of those, government and industry or economy, need to have a moral center. And without it, they're going to be they're going to they're, they're going to be out on their own and they're going to be tyrants in their own re respective areas and that's i think that's what we're seeing we're yeah. seeing the government when they come in they control way too much and they do things very badly very uh, inefficiently with the force of government but now you also have co the corporations that are in bed with that government in 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 speech issues in uh in politics it doesn't it doesn't really matter um but where the 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 corporate cronies get what they want because government backs them and 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 then the the trade is reciprocal so that, that that's a that's a huge problem we have and yeah. to answer i guess to answer your question should we relook it absolutely yeah so absolutely. i mean we we've, we've allowed these uh the these pharmaceutical these uh, uh health insurance companies these uh, these different uh industries to advertise and to to Rinkwist's point is that yeah that's all there is on tv these days is is uh advertisements for the the latest medication for anybody over the age of 60. Yeah, well and it, and it gets, you know, and I, I don't want to, you know, kind of direct the uh conversation too much, but I I watch my wife watches what I call trash TV, right? And they target these ads, you know, because the people that are watching what I call trash TV, reality shows uh, about like disastrous families and stuff are typically women and they're marketing these drugs specifically to women. And they're kind of trying to normalize like serious conditions like depression, anxiety, uh, bipolar. And they're like, here, take this medicine. You don't even need to go to a doctor anymore. You can, you know, just get it sent to your house. And it's like, is, that is like a serious thing that you really should take time and effort and understanding before you jump onto that bandwagon. And now it's like, well, this is my right. I have this right to get this thing. But are you being cured or are you being like sedated, you know, with these drugs, I think, in, in a lot of circumstances. So um, but, you know, that's just a little personal observation of mine, I've noticed. Uh, so left unchecked, if you give financial uh, incentives for for something, uh, those people who provide that something never run out of, never run out of it. Not ever, yeah. People to, to diagnose you with a disease, they will keep diagnosing you with diseases. Yeah. If you pay someone uh, to, to, to find inequalities or inequities in society, they will continue to find them, um, whether they're there or not. And so, uh, yeah, it, that that that's a problem. It, yeah. Without a moral center, th those uh, those th those issues are a problem. Yeah. So uh, 
Back to the economy, okay? So when you were talking to John about uh, the economy, you mentioned like the burgeoning new industry, you know, the 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 robots, the AI, all the things that a lot of people are scared of, honestly. Um, but you're right in the fact that there is new industry to be made there. There's a lot of commerce to be made there. And we want, you know, I want somebody from my state in the federal government thinking this way, right? Because that's how you have a successful economy is forward thinking. Um, I would point to... Back to the Gilded Age, post-Civil War and even during Civil War, right? The railroads were a new industry. They were burgeoning. Um, they got in bed with government. You know, we talk about the government power and the corporate power. Where did that start? It started post-Civil War with the railroads. It eventually became into the finance industry. And this is where corporations gained a lot of power, right? And you're talking about incentivizing new industry that's going to have a lot of power. Now, wh what are the guardrails you're going to put on that? to make sure that this new corporate power that you create by incentivizing it doesn't take you over, right? Doesn't grow too large and swallow up the whole. Well, I think that's, that's also where our political leaders come in. And I think that's been on clear display anytime there's something of, of, of new technology that comes before Congress, whether it's crypto, whether it's cyber, whether it's uh, election integrity or, and, and we get into these fields or social media, uh, when you see these hearings, you, what you what you quickly realize is that our, our political leaders are so old that they have no idea about these industries, or, nor have they thought about them. And so we need we need leaders that are thinking about the future workforce, that are thinking about these future technologies and be able to relate and understand and maybe have a background in, the, in, in these fields uh, and stay current with them. Uh, I mean, how many lawyers do we do we actually need in Congress? Uh, <laughs> there's almost every single one of them is a lawyer, and and, and there's campaign finance reasons for that too. But that, that's a different subject. Um, yeah, we, we need people with a di a true diversity, a diversity of background, a diversity of experience that actually want to solve and think about these problems going forward. They, these are new industries. We, we're gonna if if the regulators aren't gonna be at the tip of the spear in in the in the industry, what we're going to see is we're going to see runaway problems. We we saw it in the banking industry, for instance. Right. Um, that's what led to the housing collapse. Uh, it, you have products that industry is producing faster than the regulators know how to regulate them. It's only going to exacerbate when in in this future of of, of uh, artificial intelligence, things are coming quicker than the people at the top are going to be able to to, to manage. So you got to have staff you got to have individuals who understand it and if necessary you got to have regulations uh so that these things don't happen i mean elon musk talks about it a bunch now about artificial yeah. intelligence like you're creating our own overlords it's something we do have to be uh worried about yeah so simultaneously we also have to be worried about a, a workforce that does need employment because if not that you know the, the the masses will get restless how 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 long before that takes place and that's one of the one of the the top issues that I that I get when I'm on the campaign trail in in rural Virginia I was down in uh in in uh, uh King George County the other day and I'm you met a woman named Ver uh, uh Hillary uh and she had two young boys and she's like I don't want my young boys to go up to northern Virginia I, I want them to stay here I want them to grow up here but there's no jobs for them here and so with the hollowing out of rural America these these young kids are either forced not to work uh, or or they're forced to go somewhere else in these population centers. 
Well, there's so many people here in Northern Virginia, and I don't have to tell you guys that, but for anybody listening, there's so many people here in Northern Virginia, it drives up the cost of everything. We yeah. have unaffordable housing, we have unaffordable food, uh, gas is high. I mean, everything's everything's high. And there's yeah. and, and wages aren't rising because there's more and more people that keep on coming. Um, the only way to, to to reverse that is to actually reverse that. We have to start building industry in rural America um, with these advanced technologies, with industry or uh, with the uh, the ener energy industry. I mean, Virginia is well positioned in the, in the field of, of nuclear energy um, and education. We have six different colleges that have a that have like nuclear uh, engineering and, and and technology degrees here in Virginia. We have we have two. Um, nuclear power plants here. Yeah. We can we can be a leader in that field, um, yeah. and that's something that we need for for cheap industry and for employment. There's there's a lot of things that we can do. Congress isn't doing any of them. Yeah, it's, you know, I when I ran for Congress, the first time, the first event that I went with, there was this guy running for office who was like, you know. There's a lot of upcoming technology. This was a year ago, right? Before the whole chat GBT. He's like, there's a lot of technology. And what you really need is you really need an IT guy in Congress. And I'm your guy. And that guy's name was John Beatty. John, what do you think about that? <laughs> well, it didn't work out as a campaign uh, plug, but uh, no, I completely agree. Um, uh, that was definitely something I thought about strongly in, in terms of what kind of laws regulations that congress is going to write and the kind of people in congress don't understand it like uh <clears throat> i think um again there's a lot of military people there's a lot of lawyers um there's there was i think we we ended up doing some research there was one game developer in congress uh last year so i think there may be another guy won so maybe there's there's two programmers uh total but um no i, I think the state of Virginia understanding 49th in the technology field, the, the the state of Virginia is 49th in uh, job uh, IT job openings, right? So there's uh, we are next to last as far as job IT job positions that are open that can't be filled. We just don't have it. We don't have enough people coming out of college with the degrees and the certifications necessary to fill these gaps. There's so many IT companies here in Virginia that we can't find the work. And so those th those workers are in, they come from other uh, from other countries, that that's a problem. That's just a problem. It, it's a problem that goes back to um, education. We hadn't talked about that, but there's a lot of talk about education these days and the culture wars of education and parental rights and 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 that conversation, which is a, which is a relevant conversation to have. One of them that's not very that it's not talked about very much is education for this future workforce in the stem field fields in the but trade but that's a state issue well that's that's why yeah i would also say like um as someone who's been in the industry like you don't need a college degree to, to do any of this the it stuff it's very much vocational training in the same way that you would you could apprentice to become a plumber and apprentice to become an electrician i think you know you could be a, an apprentice to be a programmer like you don't need to learn the algorithms and the this computer science -y underpinnings and stuff in order to actually like write some code to solve someone's problem. Um, now there, there is merit to learning computer science. Like I teach a computer science class, like the algorithms themselves can be intellectually interesting. There's a lot of research and development that can go into that kind of stuff. But in terms of like making someone's day-to-day -day live better, like, you know, building a website doesn't require a college degree. If, on, if anything, it requires a two-month boot camp where you just kind of learn the tools and then you go out there and you you work with someone, you know, go back to serving people. Like you, you serve someone and say, I need a website and say, oh, I can build one for you. You know, like um, I would say that that would be the the kind of education thing that you could go for. And 
uh, you know, maybe there's some some work uh, work camps or something where you could pay off your student loans by learning to code and working for a program. You know, just well, you know, put what, that in your, your you know what I was thinking the other day is I was I was talking to a friend of mine. He's got a like a culinary business that he started. Okay, and he's talking about how he he can't find anybody to work for him, right? Like he can't he can't afford the people that have the training and he can't hire anybody and train them because nobody wants the job without training now. So I was like, you know what you should do? You should find out if you can be a culinary school, you should hire them. And then when, and when they work through your program, you pay them instead of them paying you, you pay them to work for you at the same time. And that's their schooling. Right. And then they can be a chef when they're done, you know, and you've got like a, a certificate or whatever for, uh, as a, a culinary school, you could do the same thing for a programming school. You know, you could do say, I, I own a, a graphic design business, right? You don't need to go to school to be a graphic designer. I have kids working for me that are going to college right now for it. One of them is going to get a design certificate. Why can't I issue the design certificate, right? He works for me. I know what he does. Why does the, you know, this other industry have to do it? You know, and you, uh, Eddie, you're talking about hollowing out of middle America and in rural areas. Well, that's because the pay's too high. It's because we don't have any labor to grow our businesses. Like you said, you know, everybody has to move there because there's not enough opportunity. And then the small business guy kind of gets shafted. Um, this would be a way to kind of balance that out. No, I agree. There, a, a, a credentialing system that um, that ex, that is expanded to kind of the possibly to what you're talking about is is having the ability to call someone educated or credentialed in a certain field especially if you already have a business that is in that field you are a professional um yeah it, it, that, that that's an option that that we should be able to look at and it should be common sense but we know common sense isn't always so common <laughs> that is uh that is a good point you know um i was thinking well it's, it's about the incentives i mean like if you're a, if you're running a, a university you have no incentive to allow someone to completely bypass this big infrastructure you've got um, in order to uh, uh, find cheap, cheaper labor, but, you know, more self-fulfilling where instead of spending four years studying, you can actually, you know, uh, produce work uh, from day one, go through that training process. So, yeah. you know, th there's the common sense and then there's, there's people economic incentives in order to um, actually give up something in order to make the, the whole better. Yeah, I mean, we're, we we suck so much of our labor out by sending it to college, right? And we tell them you have to go to college to get this job, when in reality, they could actually work at a lower level in the job and then be qualified to do the job that they want. Journalism would be a good one, right? Like that in journalism, local journalism uh, has basically died. There's very little local journalists. I'm sure you've realized that running for Senate now. Um, and you know, these are all industries that are suffering because they can't find labor when, you know, because their labor pays so much for school. Now they have to make a certain dollar figure when they get out of school. It's like, hey, I paid for my training. Now you pay me back for it. And it's like, no, 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 that's not how it works. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, the military has has done this for quite some time, Is it, which maybe it should be able to, to, to expand. Uh, but but we have we've had problems or uh, programs in the past that pay off certain amount of student loans based on the, the the degree in which somebody has when they come in. If you come in, you can come into the military right now as a doctor, you know, straight as a either a captain or a major or a colonel, depends on what your qualifications already are. And there are certain uh, certain benefits. It depends the time of the the time of the week 
uh, because they're always changing. But they, there are incentives to to someone who has a certain degree field, uh, is a profession in a certain degree field to come into the military, and they get an, a benefit on either student loans or um, or bonuses or whatever. Um, th that is a that could be a way to 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 kind of bridge this gap before in between where we are now and to where we want to be. Um, where we want to be is kind of what you were saying is we, we need this, a larger credentialing system so that we can get more younger people employed quickly. And it's just something that we have, we have few and far between. I met a, I talked to a guy the other day in Harrisonburg. He, he has a, uh, an HVAC company. He was like, I got work for days. I don't have people. Yep. I, and so I, I, if I had 20 more people that, that were technicians, I could, I could work them all day. I have so much work. I just can't. And yep. who does that hurt? That hurts. Not only does it hurt that business owner, it hurts the people who aren't employed. It also hurts the consumer because now the consumer's waiting. I, in in the wintertime, you're waiting for an for an HVAC. You're freezing to death, and in the summertime, you're you're, you're sweating to death. And so it, you can take that to uh, doctors and nurses, rural areas. You can't find a doctor. Wait times are through the roof uh, yeah. because th there isn't anybody there. There there isn't enough people there. There isn't enough financial incentive uh, because we've hollowed out these industries. And so yeah. it's a we're in a we're in a, a circular problem where which comes first the chicken or the egg what comes first the 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 jobs or the infrastructure um, we have, we have to start somewhere and and to your point is who do, when it when there's large wait times and the small business can't hire so they're behind who does it hurt it hurts community like it hurts the local community is who it hurts most um, John you have another question for Eddie. Yeah, so um, the Senate, you know, it's got our members. Uh, it's kind of a, a a club, as people would say. So, you know, depending on, you know, if it's a minority, majority, who knows how, how the whole election will go. But how would you press the power, the levers of power? Like, we like to talk about levers of power in the Madison Republican class. Like, how would you work the levers of power in order to help serve the people of Virginia, the state of Virginia, in terms of actually getting something done? So, you know, you've got some grand policy idea um and you just you, you really want to get it passed because you know it's going to be great for virginia it's going to be great for the united states like how would you get that done in, in the senate well you got a coalition build one of the things that you know again i'll keep coming back to my military service because i think it's important uh whether it be in the military coming from different people with different backgrounds in order to come together with a mission to to accomplish it or as an american military coming together with uh, the Australians or the Brits or the, the French to, uh, to to accomplish a mission in, in Iraq or some war zone. There has to be, uh, you, you have to talk to people. You have to be able to build bridges. You have to be able to communicate in an articulate manner. And I tell people, look, I mean, if 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 all we do is, is sit on the right side of the fence and cross our arms and, and, and not play ball with anybody, well, then, then you just you just won't do anything. And so we need the most conservative candidate that can win so we can pass the most conservative policy that can pass the best ideas. And and the best ideas don't always come from the same people. They just don't. That, that's it. That's an impossibility um, unless you're like Elon Musk or somebody. Um, but 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 the but politicians definitely aren't that. And so there are good ideas. There are bad ideas. I think the good ideas need to go forward and you need to, to, to work with people to, to accomplish those things. I think the bad ideas need to be thrown away, not just supported because it's my side. Uh, that is, that is a big problem. The tribalism and the unwillingness, uh, to, to find the common ground 
without compromising your your morality, for instance, and 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 uh, your, the fundamental principles of who we are, you can still come to common ground and say, what do we need to do to for you to be on board with this? And if there's an open conversation, if people are willing to work, you can find a solution. We'll we'll, we'll meet somewhere uh, in the middle. That used to be commonplace. Um, now it's not, and yeah. it's uh, I, I and I don't I don't blame. I always say I don't blame people. I don't blame people. I blame the the leaders in our political offices right now. The, these politicians, they're the ones who 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 are driving the tribalism that are uh, making money, profiteering off of our ang anxiety and, and anger with with the other side, with the other person. Uh, th that's not right, and we have to get past it. Yeah. So. Um... I think I mentioned this before we went on, but uh, you said something that triggered, I read 1984 yesterday and you were talking about how like, we need to throw away the bad ideas and not just support them because the party says so. I mean, isn't that kind of the main theme of uh, <laughs> of the party of the, of 1984 is, yeah. is like, do what the party says <laughs> or you disappear. <laughs> well, that, that, and that's a problem. I mean, I tell people, look, I only pledge, I pledge loyalty to God and to my wife um it, it, in church that, that's it um every everything else it's about serving our nation it, and that's my third that's the third pledge is when I've, I've sworn allegiance to the constitution a, a couple times in, in service um that's what it's all about anything else we can find solutions um you, you, we can't have people so rigid in their ideology that they won't accept a good policy just because it came from somebody that they're not supposed to like or not supposed to agree with, I don't agree with that th that thought process. I don't. I, to me, it's it's astoundingly ignorant, and and we see it every day, and and so that one of the reasons we're running, one one of the reasons I'm running is to restore some kind of sanity, uh, a government that actually, what I say, a government that actually works for all Americans. The top in America do great, and there's a lot of programs for the needy, but the average person pays for all of that stuff, and they don't receive any of it, and 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 that's a problem. That is a that is the biggest problem we have. Yeah. Um, well, Eddie, it has been great having you on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, I have found this conversation to be wonderful. I love your answers on the stuff that I care about, which is campaign finance and uncapping the house. Um, you seem like the type of guy who's willing to listen. And I think that I have interviewed a lot, either publicly or privately, politicians, and it is rare to find. So I appreciate that. Um, I hope that your campaign goes well. I hope that you uh, keep listening to people, and I'm sure that your message will be shaped by the people of Virginia as as you talk to them and what they need. Um, and uh, John, did you have anything to add to Eddie? Eddie, thanks so much for coming. Appreciate it. We'll uh, we'll see you around the campaign trail next year and a half. I, pre I, I appreciate. Oh my that. gosh, no, this is I'm having flashbacks to so I ran for Congress, um, and I started in like April of the year before. So it's uh, it's a slog, let me tell you. <laughs> oh yeah, we got it. And we it's got not fun. Months. Sorry, what? Just one last word. Just because I, you know, I'm a politician. Uh, it's not fun running with the state candidates because they want the the spotlight, and you got to be, you know, you have to like muscle there. So um, there's a lot of of uh, uh, politicking in terms of getting your stage time when no one cares about you at this point. <laughs> well, let me. I'll, I'll address that. Let me address that, John, because that's in super important because it's 2023, and I've been open and honest and upfront with every single. Republican that's running for office right now, and and some of them have been named because there's not they don't have a primary. Other people are pushing through the primary. 
I am 100% supporting all the Republican candidates running in 2023. I believe in a Big Ten. I believe in in momentum. I think that once we take the ball, we actually we, we, we run and we try to march down the field. We don't just hand it. We don't take a knee and hand it back to the other team. We actually got to support one another. Republicans don't well work together, uh, don't work well together. Um, I, I am trying to, to support and help and show up and door knock for any of the Republican candidates in this state election. And, and the expectation is that we win. And then when we win here in the state, we're going to be better positioned for 2024 and beyond. It's super important. We can't we, we can't rely on people with big money to come in and, and flood the state and with enough airtime and, and anxiety to win elections. We need grassroots effort. We need regular people that that can uh, that support a candidate that can that come together with local, state, federal government uh, officials and politicians that want to do good for one another and to to back one one another. The Democrats do it so well. The Republicans are all constantly infighting, and so we're not like that. I'm not like that. Uh, I think and uh, I think as a, as a big tent, I think that everybody uh, has a place. I support the. I, I support our party. I support good ideas. Um, and we, we, if we win in twenty twenty three, we're definitely going to be positioned for twenty twenty four with the right candidate with the right message. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Republicans should support each other. However, where I dis disagree or uh, dissent from the rest of the party is we should be allowed to also disagree publicly, right? Like that's the biggest thing. Is like if you want me to support you you expect me to just nod along with everything that you say. And it's like, look, I can have a, a, a debate with you publicly and keep it civil. Like we can just talk about ideas. Um, so I think you're that type of guy so far. Uh, we'll see. It, you got a long race to go. I oh, mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you've got a long way to go. Uh, so, but, uh, you know, keep that message. Uh, I appreciate it. And keep talking to the people of Virginia because they are very, very smart people and they'll 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 help educate you along your way. And I wish you the best success um, for our listeners. Uh, we appreciate you tuning in uh, next week. John and I are going to be uh, interviewing Ian Lovejoy. He's running for state house of delegates. Um, it's 21 or 22. I apologize, Ian. I always get it confused. I'll get it right next week on the show. Um, John and I are trying to interview as many candidates as we can. We're trying to bring the people to the people running for office so you can be better informed and elect better leaders. We do appreciate your time. And as always, peace and love.